0: Welcome to Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. On this episode, we're going to go over acid-base evaluation. Most of the patients you see in pediatrics aren't going to get a blood gas drawn, but for the ones who do need it, knowing how to work through an acid-base workup is a huge help in narrowing down your differential and deciding the right treatment plan. It's probably also going to be worth at least a few extra points on your next step or board exam. It might be a little beyond what you need to know for the shelf, but it will help you look smart on rounds. As a warning to listeners, this episode will involve math. When you start an acid-base evaluation for a patient, ideally you want an arterial blood gas and in a basic metabolic panel drawn reasonably close to one another. They don't have to be at exactly the same time, but if they're more than a few hours apart, things are less likely to line up as well. An ABG gives you a ton of information. The pH, arterial oxygen pressure, arterial CO2 pressure, bicarbonate, base deficit, total CO2, and oxygen saturation. All those numbers have value in the right context, but when we're talking acid base, we only really care about the pH and the arterial CO2 pressure. We're also only going to take the sodium, chloride, and bicarbonate from the BMP and not worry about the rest. The reason you use the bicarbonate from the chem panel and not from the ABG is that on the ABG, the bicarbonate is calculated, not directly measured. It usually comes out to be pretty much the same number, but it's wrong enough at the time that it's better to not use it. So now that we have our numbers, we can start figuring out what they mean. Step one's the easiest. Is your patient acidotic or alkalotic? Normal serum pH is 7.40 and the range is anywhere from 7.35 to 7.45. What's acidic and what's basic goes all the way back to general chemistry. Less than 7.35 is acidosis and over 7.45 is alkalosis. It's a tight range because all the little things your body needs to do to keep you alive work best under pretty specific circumstances. Make the environment more acidic or more basic, and compensatory mechanisms kick in to keep enzymes and other important parts from breaking down. Your body is really good at keeping your pH in the right spot, and it takes a lot to make any significant change. I don't care what Dr. Oz or your cousin's naturopath say. No amount of apple cider vinegar, at least not any amount that anybody is capable of drinking, is going to change your pH and give you magic health benefit. For step two you figure out if the primary process is respiratory or metabolic. The body has a few different systems to deal with acid base shifts but the one we're looking at here is the bicarbonate buffer system which alters the levels of CO2 and bicarbonate to try to keep a steady pH. At baseline the arterial pressure of carbon dioxide is about 40 millimeters of mercury and the bicarbonate concentration is 24 milliequivalents per liter. When you're deciding if an acid-base problem is mainly respiratory or mainly metabolic, it's helpful to think of CO2 as an acid and bicarbonate as a base. If you have a low pH and a high CO2 and elevated bicarb, it's a respiratory acidosis. A high CO2 means more acid in the system to explain your low pH. For a metabolic acidosis, you'd see a low bicarbonate and a low CO2. It's the same general idea for alkalosis. High pH and low CO2 is respiratory, and it's metabolic if the bicarbonate is high. If the picture isn't totally clear, for example, acidosis with a CO2 of 45 and a bicarbonate of 16, both of which could go with an acidosis, you use the one that's farther from baseline as your primary process. In this case, it would be a primary metabolic acidosis. Cases that aren't a perfect fit are a nice segue into step 3, figuring out the expected compensation. The reason the carbon dioxide and bicarbonate both change when there's an acid base problem is that the body is trying to minimize the change in pH by holding on to or eliminating acids and bases. For a metabolic process, the compensation is through the respiratory system by changing how much carbon dioxide is taken out of the system. Patients with a metabolic acidosis exhale more carbon dioxide than usual. Remember, CO2 is like an acid in this situation to help keep the serum pH in the normal range. That's the explanation for Kussmaul breathing, those deep, rapid breaths you see in DKA and other acidotic states. On the other side, patients with metabolic alkalosis will try to hang on to carbon dioxide to keep from becoming too basic. In primary respiratory processes, the compensation comes through the kidneys either retaining or excreting bicarbonate to counter the change. One important point, the compensation is not its own acid-base disorder. If you tell an ICU doctor or a nephrologist that a patient has a metabolic acidosis with compensatory respiratory alkalosis, you're going to buy a few minutes of education for everybody else on rounds. The terms acidosis and alkalosis imply there's something wrong, but the body's compensation mechanisms are exactly what's supposed to happen. It's impossible for your body to overcompensate and make acidosis into an alkalosis, or vice versa. If the expected compensation doesn't line up with what was measured for example, a bicarb that's too high in respiratory acidosis, your patient has more than one acid base problem. Okay, this is the start of the math that I warned you about. To figure out what level of compensation is expected, there are some handy formulas out there. The one you're most likely to use, and will probably memorize eventually even if you aren't trying to, is Winter's formula for metabolic acidosis. In a patient with metabolic acidosis, the expected arterial carbon dioxide is equal to 1.5 times the bicarb, plus 8, plus or minus 2. Order of operations matters, so be sure to multiply by 1.5 before you get to the plus 8 part. Metabolic alkalosis is a similar equation, but it's one you won't use as often. Arterial CO2 should be 0.9 times the bicarb, plus 9. For respiratory processes, it's a little more complicated because the degree of compensation changes based on whether it's an acute or chronic condition. The longer a respiratory process is going on, the better the kidneys get at retaining or excreting bicarbonate to compensate for it. Respiratory processes don't have the nice, neat formulas we use for metabolic acid-base problems, and it's easier to base it on the change from baseline carbon dioxide. For an acute respiratory acidosis, the bicarbonate will increase by 1 milliequivalent per liter for every 10 millimeters in mercury the CO2 rises above normal. Turn that into a chronic process, and you'll get an increase of 4 in the bicarbonate for every 10 the CO2 goes up. To put that into context, an asthmatic, who is acutely retaining carbon dioxide because of an exacerbation and has an arterial CO2 of 60, will have a bicarb concentration of about 26. 60 minus 40 equals 20, and our bicarb goes up by 1 for every 10 the CO2 changes. On the other end, a cystic fibrosis patient who's been retaining CO2 his whole life and has an arterial CO2 of 60 would have a bicarbonate of around 32, because in a chronic acidosis you get more robust compensation. Just like with metabolic processes, respiratory alkalosis has a similar compensation pattern to respiratory acidosis. In an acute alkalosis, the bicarbonate will go down by 2 for every 10 millimeters of mercury the carbon dioxide decreases, while chronic alkalosis causes the bicarb to drop by 4 for every 10. Figuring out the expected compensation is important because it's the first step where we start looking for secondary or mixed acid-base disorders. Patients can have about as many acid-base problems as they want, and knowing what's going on will help guide your treatment plan. I threw out an example earlier with an acidotic patient whose CO2 was 45 and bicarbonate was 16. We decided to call it a metabolic acidosis because the bicarbonate had shifted more from baseline than the carbon dioxide. So our expected compensation would be 1.5 times 16, which is 24, plus 8, plus or minus 2, meaning our arterial CO2 should be somewhere in the 30 to 34 range. Instead, it's 45, which is a lot higher than expected, so this patient has both a metabolic acidosis and a respiratory acidosis. The fourth step in your acid-base evaluation is to calculate the anion gap. It's most important to do in a metabolic acidosis, whether it's the primary or secondary problem, but from step 3 on, we're trying to uncover any additional problems that might be there, so you should do it for everyone if you're being thorough. The anion gap is equal to the serum-sodium concentration minus the concentrations of chloride and bicarbonate. So the main cation minus the two anions. Some hospitals include the potassium when they're calculating the anion gap for the lab results report, but every doctor and textbook I've ever learned from leaves the potassium out, so that's how I'm going to talk about it here. A normal anion gap is around 10 to 12, although a lot of the time we just use 10 to make the math as simple as possible. Your body doesn't actually have an anion gap. You aren't carrying in that positive charge but the anion gap represents all those unmeasured anions in the system. Proteins are a major contributor, but there are also trace elements and other compounds like phosphates floating around, and if you added up every single anion and every single cation, you'd probably come out pretty much balanced. When the anion gap is larger than expected in a metabolic acidosis, some of the bicarbonate has been used up in the buffer system and replaced by unmeasured anions like keto acids, lactate, or other substances. If there's a metabolic acidosis with a normal anion gap it means that the cause is direct bicarbonate loss rather than additional acids when that happens kidneys retain extra chloride to keep anions and cations balanced about one milliequivalent for every milliequivalent of bicarbonate lost which keeps the anion gap from changing step five is the last step and unfortunately it's the hardest one to wrap your head around there are two ways to do it and we'll talk about both of them but here's the point just like in steps three and four we're digging into the numbers to look for signs of additional acid-base disorders, and in this step we're focusing on metabolic problems by using the anion gap. In a pure anion gap metabolic acidosis, the change in bicarbonate should be the same as the change in the anion gap. When they don't line up like that is when we find extra problems. The first, more traditional way to look at it is called the delta-delta, or delta ratio. You look at the change in the anion gap over the change in bicarbonate, So a ratio of changes, or, since we're all fancy scientists, the delta ratio. Again, in a pure anion gap metabolic acidosis, the changes should be equal, so the delta ratio will be 1, or really close to it. If the anion gap changes less than the bicarbonate, the ratio will be less than 1, which means that in addition to anion gap metabolic acidosis, there's also a non-anion gap acidosis. If the anion gap changes more than the bicarbonate, the ratio will be greater than 1, meaning there's an anion gap acidosis and a metabolic alkalosis. As an example, if the anion gap is 23 and the bicarb is 20, the change in anion gap is 13 and the change in bicarb is only 4. So the delta ratio is 13 over 4, much greater than 1, which means there's a metabolic alkalosis along with our anion gap acidosis. Delta ratios have never been my strong suit. I can never seem to remember whether the bicarb or anion gap goes on top, so I can't keep straight what it means when the ratio is over or under 1. Lucky for me, one of the critical care doctors I worked with in residency taught me another way. I don't know if it has an actual name, so I've always just referred to it as finding the corrected bicarbonate. The idea is the same, looking for additional metabolic disorders by comparing the changes in anion gap and bicarbonate, but the method is just easier for me to use. With this method, instead of a ratio, you take the change in anion gap and add it to the measured bicarbonate. Remember, our three possible answers here are pure anion gap acidosis, anion gap acidosis plus non-gap acidosis, and anion gap acidosis plus metabolic alkalosis. In pure anion gap acidosis, the change in bicarb and the change in anion gap will be the same. So adding the change in anion gap to the measured bicarb will tell you what the bicarbonate looks like when you take the anion gap out of the picture. You're correcting the bicarb for the anion gap acidosis and seeing what's left. If it's greater than 24, there's an additional alkalosis, and if it's less than 24, there's an additional acidosis. Let's use the same example from the delta ratio with the anion gap of 23 and bicarb of 20 so you know I'm not just making this up. The change in anion gap is 13. So when we add that to the bicarbonate of 20, it comes to 33. When you correct for the anion gap acidosis, the bicarbonate is 33, which means there's also a metabolic alkalosis. So with delta ratio and corrected bicarb, we have two roads that take you to the same place. Those are your five steps for acid base evaluation. Don't worry if the concept doesn't quite stick yet. We have a few more examples we'll go through and do all the steps before we wrap things up. I put these examples together by getting labs from actual patients, then tweaking the numbers a little bit just to make everything work nicely, because we're all learning here. Like everything else, it's usually a little messier with real patients. I'm going to go straight through them, but if you want to try to work them out yourself, just hit pause and check your work when you start up again. Let's start out with a 12-year-old who comes into the emergency room exhausted, with rapid, deep breathing, and he's been drinking and peeing constantly for the last three days. You get an ABG that shows a pH of 7.28, and a CO2 of 30. On the chem panel, the sodium is 134, chloride is 100, and bicarb is 14. Step 1, pH is 7.28, so it's an acidosis. Step 2, bicarb is low, and so is the CO2, so we'll call it a metabolic acidosis. Those are the easy ones, now we gotta start doing some math. Since it's a metabolic acidosis, we use Winter's formula for a compensation in step 3 the CO2 should be 1.5 times 14 plus 8, with that plus or minus 2 wiggle room. That gives us a range of 27 to 31 for our carbon dioxide, and ours is 30, so it's a compensated metabolic acidosis. Step 4, the anion gap, is 134 minus 100 minus 14, which comes out to 20. 20 is definitely more than 10, so now we can call it a compensated anion gap metabolic acidosis. Finally, the dreaded step 5. For this first one, we'll do both the delta ratio and the corrected bicarb. The anion gap was 20, so a change of 10, and the bicarbonate was 14, another change of 10. 10 over 10 is 1, which means no other disorders going on. Using corrected bicarbonate, our bicarb of 14 plus the anion gap change of 10 comes out to 24, a normal bicarbonate. Either one you use, we can call this a compensated anion gap metabolic acidosis. For metabolic acidosis in general, the symptoms are usually nonspecific. Patients are often breathing rapidly or showing Kussmaul breathing to try to blow off CO2 and have headaches and vomiting. In the late stages, patients can progress to lethargy, seizures, and coma, which is a common thread for the late stages of all the acid-base problems. You probably guessed that our sample patient's anion gap acidosis was caused by diabetic ketoacidosis, which is one of the more common ways that acid-base evaluations come up in pediatrics. I've never loved mnemonics, but the popular one for other causes of anion gap acidosis is mud piles. Methanol, uremia, DKA, propylene glycol, inborn errors, lactic acidosis, ethylene glycol, and salicylates. When I was looking up what mud piles stood for, like I said, I'm not a big mnemonic guy, I learned there are a ton of others out there for anion gap acidosis. Goldmark, caramel with a K, dump sale. So you have options if you want some help remembering common causes of anion gap acidosis. Non-gap acidosis is less common in general, and there are fewer causes to consider. Remember, the problem is bicarbonate losses, so a lot of the time the underlying cause is related to the kidneys or gut. Acetazolamide and spironolactone are drugs that can cause a non-gap acidosis, but they don't get used too often in kids. It's worth knowing on the wards and in the ICU, but probably a little less likely to come up on exams. The most common way a non-gap acidosis is going to come up for you is probably in a patient with profuse, watery diarrhea because bicarbonate is lost in the stool. Finally, in pediatrics, and especially on exams when they give you labs in the question stem, you should also be on the lookout for renal tubular acidosis and other congenital metabolic problems. Okay, next question. A 10-year-old with a history of asthma comes in with difficulty breathing for the last day and a half. He's working hard to breathe and not moving much air on your exam. You wouldn't usually get an ABG in this situation, but he looks pretty sick and you want more information before you decide if he should be intubated, so you go ahead and do it. The ABG shows a pH of 7.25 and a CO2 of 57. On his chem panel, the sodium is 141, chloride 105, and bicarbonate is 26. Step 1, with a pH of 7.25, this is an acidosis. For step 2, the CO2 and bicarb are both up, so it's a respiratory acidosis. In step 3, remember, respiratory acidosis compensation depends on whether it's an acute or chronic problem. Since we only have a day and a half of symptoms, we'll check acute first. His carbon dioxide is 57, 17 above baseline, so we'd expect his bicarb to be 1 or 2 milliequivalents higher than usual. His is 26, so he has a compensated acute respiratory acidosis. In step 4, our anion gap is 141-105-26, which comes out to 10, so normal. Since there's no anion gap, we can skip step 5 and call this a compensated acute respiratory acidosis. Respiratory acidosis can come from any condition that causes CO2 retention. Asthma usually causes an acute acidosis, but if it's really poorly controlled, it might tip more into chronic. Sleep apnea, hypoventilation syndromes, cystic fibrosis, and sedative medications that suppress the respiratory drive like opioids, benzos, and alcohol are all potential causes for respiratory acidosis. In the acute phase, respiratory acidosis causes headaches, blurry vision, and confusion, and in the late stages progresses to lethargy and coma if it's not treated. I don't have any sample cases for metabolic or respiratory alkalosis because honestly they aren't very common. Respiratory alkalosis mainly comes up in cases of hyperventilation, often because of being at high altitude, and I don't think I've ever seen it in a patient. Metabolic alkalosis is a little more common, but still not something you're going to see much. If you do come across a pediatric patient with alkalosis, you should take a close look for congenital disorders like 11-beta and 17-alpha-hydroxylase deficiencies, Barter syndrome, and Gittleman syndrome. In the short term, alkalosis causes nausea, numbness, muscle spasms, and tremors, and just like every other acid-base problem, it can progress to lethargy and coma if it's left untreated. Let's wrap up with a little tougher problem. We'll call it a 16-year-old girl who was brought in after intentionally taking a handful of pills. She's not telling anybody what she took, so we're going in blind. Her ABG shows a pH of 7.32 and a CO2 of 20, and the rest of her labs are notable for a sodium of 142, chloride 108, and a bicarb of 12. Step 1, she's close to normal, but at 7.32, you would still call this an acidosis. For step 2, the bicarb and CO2 are both low, so now we know it's a metabolic acidosis. With a metabolic acidosis, our CO2 should be 1.5 times 12 plus 8 plus or minus 2, which gives us a range of 24 to 28, but our CO2 came out at 20. Since it's impossible to overcompensate, that means we have a metabolic acidosis and a respiratory alkalosis. Step 4, the anion gap is 22, so it's an anion gap metabolic acidosis and respiratory alkalosis. Finally, for step 5, the anion gap changed by 12. Add that to the bicarb of 12 comes out to 24, meaning no extra metabolic disorders. To put it all together, she has an anion gap metabolic acidosis and a respiratory alkalosis. This is a classic presentation for salicylate or aspirin overdose. The salicylic acid causes the anion gap acidosis, and it also affects the respiratory centers in the brain to cause the respiratory alkalosis. It's worth remembering that younger patients don't always have the classic acid base disturbance, but it is more likely in an adolescent. In reality, you'd probably have the salicylate level back at the same time as everything else and already be on the phone with poison control, but it's a good, slightly complicated example to end on. For take-home points, remember that to do a good acid-base evaluation, you should have an ABG and basic chemistry panel drawn fairly close together. Work your way through the steps, acidosis versus alkalosis, metabolic versus respiratory, expected compensation, anion gap, and delta ratio or corrected bicarb, and you should catch just about everything that's going on. Acidosis comes up a lot more often than alkalosis, so if you try to commit any of the compensation formulas to memory, do it for metabolic and respiratory acidosis. Thanks for listening. This episode should make your next rotation in the ICU a little bit easier. If you liked what you heard, please give us a rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever else you find podcasts. I'm always open to suggestions and feedback. Just email pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.